Hello! I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives in November 2017. And thank you. The last moment today, I threw together an entirely new talk off the top of my head, launching into it. In life, there are times when we are told by friends to let go of something, to move on, to get over it, to put it aside, to stop thinking about something. Or sometimes we find ourselves telling other people that. Just get over him or her. Get over that job. Get over that thing that was disappointment, disappointing. Just move on. Let go. Why are you holding on to it? And in sort of mumbo-jumbo Buddhism, where people say, just let go, it sounds great, but it doesn't mean anything. Because one, uh, letting go is one of the most difficult things there is to do. It also can feel like we are being, at times, just given a very pat answer to something that's a very emotionally charged experience in life. At times, we are the ones that really want to let go, put something behind us, not think about an emotional or a disappointing event, a fight we've had with someone, a breakup, we've had a loss, or maybe a separation, or maybe... At times we want to put aside, not think about a fear, a catastrophizing worry or concern that we have that keeps popping back up in the mind. And it can be very disturbing for us how many times we want to put something aside, how much we know it would be a great idea not to worry about money or worry about issues that are utterly beyond our control or even unlikely events, and yet, for some reason, they keep arising. And this is frustrating because we're so used to the mind bending to our cognitive will, which is, you know, you all decided at one point you wanted to come to Dharma Punk, so you put aside the time to leave work or wherever you were, and you figured out the train route you were going to take, and you arrived here, and you found a spot, and it all happened probably pretty seamlessly. So for much of our lives, we are used to the mind just essentially following the directives of our inner chatter. You know, I want to go to this place for lunch, I want to go to this event, I want to uh, go, I want to not think about this thing and I want to think about something else. And very often in life, the mind does exactly what we want it to. It puts aside certain concerns and it allows us to focus on other things. But then there are those times when we can't put topics, issues, fears, traumatic memories, painful events aside. Generally, because human beings are social species and the most important issue or concern for the human mind is our connections with other human beings. That's how we survive. That's what gives our species its unique advantage. Not that we're logical 
at all. Our advantage is that we bond and attach so well to other humans, so uh, other beings. So very often the events that are difficult to put aside have to do with a relationship with another human being or a fear about a relationship or a fear about, sometimes a fear about our own health. When the mind doesn't drop these issues, it can feel as if like we're, we're being tormented by ourselves. It can, when we have insomnia and something keeps popping up and we can't put it aside, or when we find ourselves going back again and again to an argument with a family member or to a, someone who's a friend that's not returning our calls or whatever, we can feel as if there's a part of our mind that's punishing us, that's really bringing this stuff up again and again into awareness as a form of self-sabotage. This is largely because, essentially, it's entirely because the, the mind is bilateral. We have not one, but two rather largely often separate processes, left brain, right brain, that are very often in life working together, but at times are not at work at cross-purposes. Um, the left brain is, of course, used to narrating life in terms of stories, inner chatter. First, I want to do this with my life. I want to go to this event. I want to work on this project this week. I want to uh, get away this weekend. I want to take a course. So we have both short-term and long-term plans, and we're very used to our attention following these directives. We're used to, essentially, the left brain is used to being the arbiter of whatever, we, wherever we focus our attention. And for much of our, our waking lives, because we are left brain in adult life largely, uh, we're capable of focusing our attention where we want. So those times where we, something keeps popping up that we do not want to be brought to attention, that we do not want to think about, can be very disturbing. All that's really happening, of course, is that the right brain, if you want to be specific, the right anterior cingulate cortex uh, is the, by far and away, the strongest, uh, has the strongest control over what is brought to attention, where we focus, where we bring our awareness towards. That's the thing that alerts us to threats, to opportunities, to things that are surprising, and to uh, emotional events that still haven't been processed. Now, the right brain is, works very different than the left brain. The left brain represents life uh, symbolically in language. It turns the rich, full, complex experience into a story. The left brain has been compared to a map as opposed to the actual topography of a, of a physical location. It's a representation of the world born in words and symbols and numbers and dates. So it's entirely symbolic. It's used to being able to control attention and direct our movements by, at times, uh, goals, stories. It's used to conveying its messages to us through inner chatter. 
The right brain doesn't use language, narrative, or conceptual thought at all to organize its experience. It's when people have left hemispheric strokes, they generally lose the ability to speak, or if they can speak, it's extremely limited to a few words. The right brain uh, keeps track of experience by emotional associations. So when you're dreaming and you're in dreams, you tend to be far more right hemispheric than left. The right continues to work during REM sleep. So you will feel or you will experience in your dreams people and events from the distant past with people and events from the present because they're associated maybe with anxiety, fear, lust, anger, disappointment. So the right, that's how the right hemisphere brings things to our attention. If you're in a uh, breakup with someone and uh, it clatches you off guard, you'll not only feel the emotions associated with that event, but all the other times and experiences in your past where you went through a breakup that was unpredicted, that came out of the blue, where you were caught off guard. So it brings to mind things based on associations that are essentially uh, uh, structured by the emotions that we experience. So there's an entire filing cabinet in your brain called fear, and there's one called anger, and there's one called uh, disappointment, and there's one called uh, happiness and joy, and there's one called disgust, and there's one called, uh, I don't know, loneliness. And so whenever you're experiencing something that falls under one of those categories, very often memories from those filing cabinets that are associated with the memory experience will come up. Memory is emotionally uh, generally structured, not structured by themes or ideas or concepts. It's structured by the emotion that you're experiencing while the event is happening. The emotional mind, the right brain, doesn't know that experiences from the past are over with until it's given enough experiences that show it that that thing has happened, it's gone, uh, that it lets go. It needs to process in its own way. The left brain, you can tell your left brain, oh, I'm no longer dating so-and-so, or I'm no lo longer living in such-and-such such a place, so I shouldn't think about them or that location. But your right brain won't know that that person isn't there, or that you're no longer living at that location that you really liked because so much of its experiences were there. So it only learns through subsequent experiences, and it learns through experiencing certain emotions that instruct it that something has changed. The emotional mind in therapeutic circles is often referred to as an inner child. That's how we refer in counseling. I often use that term inner child as a way to get people to attune to their inner emotional somatic felt states, the messages that their right brain are conveying. There's a reason why that's, it's often referred to as the inner child, the right brain uh, messaging, because in our earliest life, in infancy, for the first two or three years of life, we're almost entirely 
right brain in the sense that the left doesn't really uh, start being a dominant factor in awareness and language production until about three or four. There's a great hemispheric migration from the right to the left that happens at around age four or five. So for early life, we structure everything and we convey all our needs through emotions, gestures, cries, facial expressions, uh, uh, movements, body language, posture, the way we look at people. We convey everything we need to the parents and the people around us through emotional expression. And so later on in life, it's very tempting to refer to our emotional activations and all the emotional memories that come up in terms of an inner child. But there's a problem with that. The problem is, is that actually our emotions and what they're conveying are actually very sophisticated and very necessary, and they convey information that's very, very important, for not only for us to manage relationships, but to uh, have a steady guidance through life. They, the emotional experiences we have contain deep value judgments and beliefs about fairness about the way we believe people should treat each other. Emotions contain messages about um, how to find safety and security and how important it is for us to connect with loved ones. Those needs are conveyed to us not through inner chatter. Your inner chatter, left hemisphere, will prioritize self-reliance, accomplishing goals, financial security, achieving things in the world, looking good to other people. The right brain will prioritize the things that you needed as a child. It will prioritize being securely connected with people that care about you. It will prioritize finding security when you feel vulnerable. Your bright brain will become upset when you see bullying, people being bullied or mistreated. When you've ever confronted injustice in your life, it's not because your thinking mind guided you, it's because you became emotionally angry or upset or outraged. Your left brain will always justify why you should go it alone, why you don't need people, why you, can, uh, why you should be able to uh, achieve goals. It will prioritize essentially amassing and accumulating wealth or objects or reputation re awards, but it will not in any given situation propel you away from taking on more obligations and responsibilities and trying to look good to the world. It will push you to, okay, to take care of yourself, to connect, to bond, to to protest when you're being mistreated or to get away from unsafe situations. When we don't know how to feel our emotions in an adequate way, we stay in abusive relationships rather than getting out. We stay in situations where we're constantly treated as a caregiver rather than having any of our needs met. So in other words, it's very easy to tell someone, get over it, let go, or to tell ourselves, why can't I get over it? or let go. But really what's happening is 
an entire hemisphere of the prefrontal cortex doesn't feel that its messages are being heard. And that's why we can't let go. Because the emotional messages are being ignored. When we're going through anxiety spirals, obsessive ideations, where something keeps coming back again and again and again into our mind, what the right hemisphere doesn't want us to do is think a lot about it. It wants us to simply have first a em full emotional experience. It wants us to experience our anger, experience our sadness, experience our loneliness, experience our joy, experience our frustration. If we cut it off by going into cognition, and I'll talk, I'll give you specific examples, then the emotion will not be processed and the topic or issue will keep coming up again and again and again into your mind. For instance, most of us have had times where we've become obsessively worried about something that's unlikely. And we try to continually reason with ourselves, well, that's not likely going to happen. I mean, uh, Trump is an asshole, but the North Koreans are probably not going to start a nuclear war with us. But still, if something is activated as an emotion, what we need to do is feel the somatic, felt affect that wants our attention so that the right brain will stop bringing up the topic again and again and again. When it's fear, the emotional brain simply wants us to process fear, to be frightened, to not cut it off with catastrophizing, thinking of everything that can go wrong, visualizing how bad things will happen to us in the future. It simply wants us to experience fear, vulnerability, so that we will change our relationships and connect with others. All emotions not only want us to, to be felt, but they want us to take an action on our behalf. Fear is a way of saying, reduce our obligations to allow ourselves to feel vulnerable and to reach out and ask for help. That's what fear is asking us to do. Until we feel it and take actions on its behalf, the catastrophizing thoughts will keep coming up again and again and again because we haven't emotionally processed. Suppose you've lost someone, uh, someone, uh, a family member dies, a friend dies, or there's a, 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 a tragic event. Until we fully grieve, we experience the grief without going into the story of what happened, why it shouldn't have happened, why the world should be a different place, but we simply experience grief, then the, the trauma, the traumatic memories will keep coming back up. <coughs> grief is a way of telling us that someone is no longer available, that we are, we've lost an attachment figure, that we need to prioritize our connections with others, that we need to get uh, very honest and let go of all of our goals and plans and simply retreat and connect with the most caring people around us. So grief and fear have very similar messages. They want us to take care of ourselves. If 
we don't process grief, we might very well wind up in cognition, which is self-pity. We'll just think, why me? Why does this happen? It's so unfair. This shouldn't be this way. Why am I the one who's always losing people or being broken up with? Why me? And while it's understandable that the left brain wants to turn everything into a story because it feels safer turning everything into inner chatter rather than to emotionally process things, which feels very, very vulnerable, there'll be no respite until we actually go through the emotional experience itself, which is, again, largely somatic. Emotions are not sent to us by inner chatter or conceptual thought. They are signaled to us by contractions in the throat, hollowness in the chest, a tightness in the belly, a contraction in the shoulders, a jumpy state of attention, insomnia, or sleeping a lot, moods. That's how the emotional mind signals its needs to us. Anger is an exceptionally useful and important emotion that... Um, essentially allows us to confront mistreatment and injustice. Without anger, we will always be defensive when someone's bullying and pushing us around. We'll retreat. We'll, and I was talking with someone today who I work with, a, a really wonderful person who went on what she had been told would be a friendly chat about a job, and when she got there, there she was blindsided by three people, who uh, a bunch of people who just started pummeling her with these denigrating questions about why she thought she deserved to work for them, and all this kind of essential game playing to try to establish dominance and to, it, frankly, it was also gender bias because these were all men and she was a woman. And so, thankfully, a lot of the work we've done in her own work, she was able to feel enough anger to say, okay, I'm getting out of here. This is, uh, I don't deserve this. And, I, and then they became all apologetic, but she just got up and left. But then afterwards, she felt, uh, she left the place and got outside. She started to cry and felt sad about the experience, and then the thoughts became, maybe I am a fraud, maybe I don't deserve to work at good places, maybe I don't deserve to get this kind of job. The reason that happened is because she didn't allow the anger to stay in place long enough. If the anger was kept, if she could feel the anger more than just the event, but walk out with it and carry it with her, then the anger wouldn't have turned, the anger will never turn into uh, essentially a story of I don't deserve good things. That's not what anger turns into. If anger turns into any story, it turns into resentment. These fucking jerks. Fuck them. Who do they fucking think they are? And that's not processing anger either. Anger is just feeling, you know, like we want to punch someone. And that's okay. I'm not telling that we should punch someone, but we should feel that and not, but because in, in, we live in a very, of course, misogynist, patriarchal society, so very many women have been disempowered of the right to feel anger 
for any significant period, not just to get out of a situation of mistreatment, but then to go into a place where they won't turn it into, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe it's my fault. Because it's not. It's not. It's the fault of people who mistreat us. And so we want to be able to stay in anger long enough that we don't habitually go into the masking emotion of sadness. Why have I been, you know, why do people treat me this way? Which then turns into, maybe I'm a fraud, maybe I deserved it, maybe I did something that brought this on. So when we process emotions correctly, which means feeling them, allowing them to fully arise, stay their natural length, and then to dissipate, then we take care of ourselves. We get out of endangering situations. We confront injustice. We make, uh, we essentially heal ourselves after abandonments or losses. We grieve and we let, we then can over time, then after those fully uh, felt affect uh, processing, then we can let go. Then we can move on. Then we can, as so many of our friends say, get over it. But it's only when we've given uh, things the true emotional processing they deserve. So, the Dharma talks uh, so much about uh, the role of the citta, which is the essentially the emotional brain, the right brain, and its role in helping us process life. The Buddha constantly said that the over-reliance on thought as a way to make sense, views, beliefs, didi upadana, it leads us uh, so far away from any sort of nuanced and self-care. So tonight's meditation is going to be guiding us to process emotional experiences that keep coming up into awareness or maybe emotionally charged experiences that we need to process. So I hope tonight's talk has been interesting in some way, and now we'll do the meditation that we'll put into practice. So, finding a really, really comfortable seated position, and then, you know, Closing the eyes, if you can. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, then look at the ground. And first, let's establish a good balance by just gently rocking the body forward and back and to right and to left. And then, with your eyes closed, just allow your body to find what feels like a settled, balanced, upright position, not based on what you think, but based on what feels upright, that's great. And now uh, we'll take a few breaths to settle in and relax key areas of the body uh, that speaks to the midbrain and lets the amygdala uh, know that we are not under attack. 
and allows us to relax a little bit more. So take a very long, extensively long, smooth in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up uh, like you're trying to touch your ears with them or you're trying to reach them above your head. Just hold the shoulders up and hold them up. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders like you've just put down two really heavy bags that you've been carrying around for a very long time. And you want to uh, just, if, you, if it feels right, very gently tuck your shoulders back a little bit so that you open up your chest. The chest conveys so much information about how connected we feel with others, how secure we feel. So we want to not keep it cut off. So for the second long, smooth, full in-breath through the nose, pull in your belly, your abdominal muscles really tight, holding it in, and then breathing out through the mouth and just softening the belly. Wonderful. And just try to, throughout the meditation, keep an eye on the the belly. When we do the breathing, we'll try to breathe into a very soft belly. When the abdomen is really relaxed, it sends such an important message up through the insula to the limbic structures of the brain saying, I'm okay. I'm, I'm safe. The first thing that happens when we feel fear or threat is the belly begins to constrict. And then finally, let's do a third deep in-breath and squinch the muscles in the face, making a really pinched, tight, you know, really contracted, ugly little face. And then breathe out. That's great. And just relax the jaws and soften the micro-muscles around the eyes. A really good tip that is helpful in settling is if you can encourage the eyes to not bounce back and forth behind the eyelids, to just get them to uh, become still as much as in just allowing them or encouraging them to settle into the sockets like they are resting. When the eyes stop moving, then it is another way to convey to pre-conscious structures of the brain that we're okay. When, you, when you're anxious, of course, the eyes begin to dart about. The breath begins to become shallow and fast. The shoulders contract and the abdomen tightens. So if we want to send a message to ourselves that we're safe, we want to breathe out really slowly. We want to, to relax and drop the shoulders, keep the belly soft and just keep the eyes settled and the jaw released, no tension or 
or clenching there. So for the first part of the meditation, we'll just keep settling the mind. So a couple ways you can do this. You can give the mind something to focus on that is not triggering. The first obviously being the sensation of the body breathing. And for this meditation, see if you can find the sensations of inhalation and exhalation uh, in your belly. And see if you can keep that belly really soft, relaxed, pliant, while at the same time feeling the subtle upward movements, perhaps of the inhalation and the release of the exhalation. If you struggle to keep the mind with the breath that's totally understandable, very normal, very very part of the process. Just count for a while the in-breaths and out-breaths. So one in the in, two in the out, three in the in, four in the out, five in the in, then counting back down, four in the out, and pay special attention to the pauses in between the out-breath and the next in-breath because that's the time you're most likely to drift away into thought. If you don't want to work with the breath, just keep your awareness on the sounds drifting up from the Bowery below, the horns, the cars, the ambient sounds in this room. You could also pay attention to whatever is the dominant sensation of any given moment. So sometimes it might be the feeling of buttocks on the cushion, or you might feel a twinge in your back, or subtle flexing of ear cartilage, or you might feel twinge in an eyebrow, and just be with whatever is the dominant sensation. Just allow yourself to track the various sensations and just don't add any story or category or judgment. Just be with whatever is occurring. 
most important, though, is whenever you find yourself drifting off into narrative thought about something that's not happening right here, right now, in the present, then gently bring your mind back to whatever you're going to keep in awareness, whether it's your breath, sounds, body sensations. Don't add any frustration, no judgment, no impatience. None of that will help at all. While we've trained ourselves over our life to become impatient or frustrated when we make mistakes, meditation is not an experience where you can make a mistake. And it's never helped by self-criticism or frustration. So if nothing else, let this time be a time where you just practice being very gentle and accepting of your experience.
So at this time, I'd like you to bring to mind either a memory, a fear, an event that has been an unwelcome visitor in your mind. Now we're going to welcome it rather than try to avoid it. If nothing comes to mind, if you haven't had such a intrusive thought recently or intrusive memory or intrusive worry, see if you can bring up a emotionally charged event from recent experience that you haven't yet had the time to process. And so instead of running away from these expressions of concern from the emotional mind, we're actually going to turn towards it and help it process an event or an experience that's frightening or painful or that needs our attention. So whatever it is, see if you can bring to mind just a representation of it, just as a topic or as an image, but not a whole story not a whole narrative, not a little inner movie, just, for example, if it's a worry about uh, money or health, just bring up that. If it's sadness about a family member, relationship, or friendship, just bring up the image of the person. And then while you hold that in your mind, whatever you need as a sort of trigger, then ask yourself very gently, how does it feel? What do I need to feel? What have I been running from? Or what am I worried about experiencing? See if you can cultivate a kind of compassion behind your eyes, welcoming any emotion that arises in your body. How does it feel? What do I not want to connect with but need to? Sometimes, even being a little bit more specific, how does it feel to be mistreated, isolated, not seen? How does it feel to be picked on, dumped on? How does it feel to want something and not get it? How does it feel to want love from someone and not receive it? 
but keep paying attention to the somatic felt experience from the face, the throat, the chest, the belly, the circuit that the right brain uses to express to us its content, its concerns. At first you might it might be very subtle, a very subtle tightness in the throat, or maybe a very sense of the shoulders contracting or the belly getting a little tight, or maybe it'll be a feeling of nauseousness or a heaviness in the mind or a sudden tremor of anger. Whatever it is, just stay with the physical experience. Don't resist it. Let yourself feel whatever you need to feel. You're creating a safe container for your emotions. This is how we integrate emotions into our life. By connecting with the body that is their canvas that they paint themselves onto. And even if you don't feel anything or you do feel something very subtle, just shift the quality of attention and maybe this subtle whisper I care about you, I care about how you feel. I care about my feelings, I care about my pain, I care about my disappointment. I care about my anger. You might want to bring to mind an image of yourself at a time in your life where you needed to feel something, loss, anger, sadness, grief, disgust, joy, relief, but you couldn't allow yourself due to how vulnerable you were. Just hold the image of yourself wanting to experience or being frightened of experiencing that which needs our attention. And just hold that image of yourself and just tell yourself that you're safe now, that you can create a container large enough to hold your frustration or loneliness or whatever it is you need to feel.
I care about how I feel. I care about my disappointments. I care about my loneliness, my frustrations, my anger, my grief. So whenever you're ready, you can let go of that image of yourself. And gently bring into awareness a sense of being in a room filled with other spiritual practitioners. Knowing that we're in a safe place. And finally, before we end, bring to mind the image of a friend that we could share, connect with, to help process, to help work through whatever unfinished business still needs to be addressed in the mind. deep recesses of the pre-conscious brain. Just visualize a friend that you could talk to, reminding yourself that you're not alone. Expressing some gratitude for them. And then whenever you're ready, very slowly you can open your eyes and try to keep whatever you've felt, if you felt anything, with you. Don't try to use sight and don't allow sight, I should say, and thought to push away whatever you've connected with. 